Welcome to On The Dresser. Sex, queers, politics. What's on your dresser? Our conversations are led by sex workers, queer folk, and sex educators. We call what we do edutitillation. We use explicit language and discuss topics that may not be a good fit for all listeners. But if you like honest, frank talk about gender, sexuality, and bodies, if you know it's all political but aren't always sure what to do about it, we're here for you. Hi, I'm Vanessa Carlisle. And I'm Danny Cruz. And on this episode, we'll hear from someone who does not experience sexual attraction. There is that, like, oh, you know, I don't have sex when I'm better than you. Like, that's not, that's not a thing. Um, <laughs> you know, like, there's no morality ascribed to asexuality. That is Taryn. She's a blogger and sex toy reviewer. Uh, she also identifies as asexual. She's here to better our understanding of asexuality and talk through some common misconceptions uh, about the identity. And we're at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas right now. We are uh, crashing the American Bar Association mid-year meeting, which is a conference for lawyers, where a lot of business gets handled, a lot of meetings of committees and groups of people and a couple of panels. And um, we're here because I co-wrote a document that is intended to help states and tribes write codes that ban conversion therapy. So I did the introduction, which is the background information on what conversion therapy is and why it is harmful to LGBTQ communities. Um, so for those of you who maybe have heard that phrase but don't know, conversion therapy is any kind of therapy that seeks to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, and it's mostly practiced now in a religious context, and it's very, very difficult to ban conversion therapy on adults because of the religious freedoms issue. But um, you can write codes that make it uh, a civil issue or a criminal issue when someone tries to do conversion therapy on a minor. And so I helped write um, a document that is going to be hopefully very useful to states and tribes who want to um, put some legislation in place to stop conversion therapy happening with minors. So I'm at this conference and Danny's here with me and we're walking around and talking to lawyers and going to panels on racism and diversity and social justice lawyering. And um, it's all happening at the same time that just this morning Melissa Jira Grant uh, posted about how the Marriott is training all of its people to start spotting human trafficking. And um, I don't know, that felt really uh, timely to be like, I'm here doing like queer activism in the, in the machine. And, um, and then also just as a sex worker in a hotel, what it feels like to be thinking about um, how much harder it is to be a sex worker in a hotel. <laughs> Especially now, the, this past month, there was an essay written um, by a London resident who was visiting the Upper East Side in New York. She went to a restaurant called Nello up there and um, wrote, a, wrote an essay called The Night I Was Mistaken for a Call Girl, where she outlines how this restaurant essentially uh, banned her from sitting at the bar area because she was by herself. And 
that is because they automatically labeled her as a an escort. Apparently, she was kind of a regular there too, like a person who went there pretty often. Like it was one of her favorite New York places, so it wasn't even like she'd never been there before. <laughs> I mean, so that that's I don't know why that strikes me, but that's sort of especially annoying. Yeah, I I really didn't know about this. I I worked in restaurants um, in New York City. A, a friend of mine has been a server and a bartender at. Uh, higher end establishments, um, and I asked her about this, and she was not surprised at all. She was like, "No, that's common practice in a lot of restaurants in New York City," um, and she named it be- without me really having to explain it. Like I told her, like, "Oh, they didn't let this woman sit by herself," and she was like, "Oh yeah, because a lot of times they're prostitutes and they're working at the bar, and it's really obvious, and they're being loud about it, loud in air quotes." Like that's how she told me, um, and it, it was striking to me. She was like, "Oh yeah, that's commonplace." So this is not only, I you know, want to note this, this is not only just Nello that's doing this, there's a whole lot of restaurants um, in New York City and probably across the country that, that do this. Now we're hearing about Marriott doing this, probably not only at their bars, but also targeting women who are staying in the hotel by themselves, as if only sex workers who are women stay in hotels by themselves. Well, what's interesting about it is if you're training people to spot trafficking, why are you looking for women staying alone? Who's trafficking a woman who's working by herself? Like, I don't even understand what they're supposed to be looking for if they're saying we're looking for trafficking. You know, I could understand if they were saying, okay, look for uh, a small group of people or a couple where there's um, clearly you know, somebody looks super fearful and somebody else is handling all the money (laughs) or something. Like I can understand, I mean, all that's bullshit anyway, but you know what I mean? Like the training is about, if you see a lot of sex toys, if they ask for a lot of towels, Mm -hmm. if it's a woman who uh, has people coming to her room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Melissa Jira Grant has done a a lot of like, um, like piecing together uh, recently on her Twitter feed. Uh, the people that are providing these trainings, they get their input from EPCAT, um, which is an anti-trafficking organization. I forget exactly what the acronym stands for. Um, but part of their checklist, uh, one of them is like, um, be aware of uh, a person, like a woman who checks in and then goes back to the street or to the car to get a child. And this is in, like, this is a quote from that checklist who is either dressed provocatively or not for the weather. Um, they want you, they want hotel employees to make sure and check IDs. And another quote is um, a person wearing a large hat and sunglasses make, make this harder for you to verify that that's the person on their ID. They want people to, they want hotel employees to like keep track of who's coming in and out of rooms. So if like one particular room is getting more traffic than another, like to then station an employee out there and then greet or talk to anyone coming in and out. Um, you sound like such privacy invas- invasion issues to me too. Like, and not, I mean, again, it's hard to talk about preventing trafficking at all because how, how do we talk about preventing trafficking without talking about invading people's privacy or being suspicious of people like that's that's part of that's part of what crime prevention relies upon right is suspicion mm-hmm. so there has to be some suspicion for there to be some prevention right in this realm anyway um 
but there's so many layers to this. First of all, as if hotel employees don't already have an idea of who's a sex worker and who's not. Like, I've experienced all kinds of like shady looks and people telling me I can't put a charge on the room. And you know what I mean? Like, I've, I definitely think that hotel employees already have an idea about who's a sex worker and who's not, which means they probably have an idea of who's getting trafficked and who's not. You know, like telling them that they need to notice more stuff is seems really insulting to me. Right because hotel employees are noticing stuff already, right? So instead of just asking them for the information, like, have you seen any of these things? Can we talk about it? Um, but telling them, you need to keep your eye out for these things. Right. So first of all, just the insult to hotel employees there. Second of all, the kind of um, blatant hypocrisy of acting as if the hotel industry doesn't rely on sex work. Right, as a large part of their like business. Men traveling alone often bring sex workers to their rooms. Like that's a very common practice, right? Mm -hmm. Businessmen traveling alone, parties of men, like that's a really normal thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, women getting a room for themselves and using it as an in-call. Sure, that's happening, but I actually think it's probably a lot less common than men having the rooms and, and, um, and getting sex workers to come visit them there, right? Either way, uh, it's part of the business of the hotel. Well, this is a thing that's remedied by another one of the um, actions that EPCAT in their checklist recommends. And I encountered this uh, when I stayed at some hotels up in Portland, is making sure that all guests of the room are registered at the hotel. So like they have cameras and, and also having cameras set up at like strategic points to make sure that everyone who enters the property is photographed and surveilled. So. Like I was staying at just a cheap little two star and they had like cameras at every angle. And like, he was like, no, all guests have to be registered. And on the thing that you sign when you check in, uh, the language on that ticket for that particular hotel was like unregistered guests face essentially criminal charges, which I pointed out to the person who checked me in as kind of going overboard and he was like no we have to call the police blah blah like I can understand this also as a way to like you can sell it to people as protecting women right like if you're a woman and you're traveling and you know you're staying at a place you can rest assured that everyone coming in and out of here is caught on camera and as a way to uh, put women's fears of home invasion room invasion stranger rape to put those fears at rest right but again those crimes are actually um, much less common than the crime of uh, rape or assault happening with someone that you know already that you've probably brought into your room, right? So it, there's something about the like surveillance and registration and, um, you know, and, and if you see something, say something kind of policies here that just feels totally prejudicial because it results in the kind of behavior that we saw at Nello, right? Where like a woman sitting alone, uh, ordering dinner for herself and having a drink by herself immediately becomes suspect just because of those things. Like, right. you know, that's so bizarre. Like most women aren't sex workers. So what? <laughs> 
Right. So wait, what? What also kind of plays on those fears that that come from the uh, the myths that we hear often about, you know, they're snatching women in parking lots um, and coming after children in parking lots and uh, will then sell somebody into trafficking. And we, we see those like text message threads in Facebook like, oh, my God, I was at this parking lot and this guy was standing next to a van. He must be trafficking people. Like yeah. those happen like once a week now sure in, yeah. in different parts and and police departments are starting to respond because it's becoming a thing where they're having to debunk it as actually like no that's not a thing that's happening in our community like we so the, the police have to do this like two-pronged thing where they're like we are fighting trafficking but these like really outlandish people are getting snatched out of parking lots thing is not real right like there's also fear-mongering going on right there is trafficking but there's actually more fear-mongering mm -hmm. than there is actual trafficking. Like that is just, that, just having to continuously re reiterate that. And I'm also thinking about how this affects like, you know, this sort of um, culture of feminist, like, in, like independent woman feminism, where I, I'm remembering books I was reading in the 90s that were, that were like, you know, go have dinner by yourself and take yourself on a date and, you know, like, here's a really good way to get over that fear of, of um, not having a man, if that's what's going on for you, right? Like, is to be romantic with yourself and dress up for yourself. And also, women things. are in business now and can travel and tr frequently travel. Like, I have a, a good friend who she um, works in cancer research and she's frequently traveling to different cities by herself and staying in hotel rooms by herself eating out by herself like and she I, you know speaking honestly with my friend she could get it if she was a sex worker but she's not <laughs> like that's actually not her business that's not what she does but categorically she would fit the reasons for somebody to ban her from a place mm -hmm. yeah I would love for someone to hire us to do one of these trainings where, where we're just like, hey, so totally leave people alone and probably the tips will go both ways. <laughs> right? <laughs> the other um, kind of insult slash uh, hit to hotel employees that Melissa Jure Grant pointed out this morning was mm -hmm. that um, Marriott Hotels, which is the hotel that's getting the most attention for these policies right now um, also doesn't pay their workers a living wage. So there's like a, how can you talk about any kind of labor trafficking when your actual employees can't get like equitable raises? No, oh, I hope they pay them for that training. Probably not. <laughs> well, if you're playing what Eugenia uh, on Twitter has lovingly called Handmaiden's Tell Bingo, uh, there's another story coming out of Utah. This one's a uh, anti-trans legislation um, bill. Yeah, in all those sex news, um, <laughs> the Utah Vital Statistics Act amendment, which is uh, HB 153 in Utah, it just got it's in pre-filing. It just got introduced. Very unlikely to pass, um, but just the fact that it's out there, um, I want to credit the Twitter account Angry Black Lady, uh, Imani Gandhi, who has been um, putting forth some of the legal research from Rewire 
Um, and this, so it came to my attention through her Twitter account. This bill would amend provisions regarding the completion um, and amendment of birth certificates in order to prohibit transgender people from being able to change the gender on their birth certificates. So it makes it impossible for a trans person to change the gender on their birth certificates um, by first requiring that birth certificates have an M or an F on them, which is actually not the case right now. You can have uh, unspecified on your birth certificate. But even more disturbing is that it defines male and female in these like really intense like attachment to sexual dimorphic <laughs> like reproduction. So um, the bill defines female as an individual with ovaries who is confirmed before or at birth to have external anatomical characteristics that appear to have the purpose of performing the natural reproductive function of providing eggs and receiving sperm from a male donor. That's a female. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. That's really, that's really gross, and it doesn't get less gross every time I read or hear it. So the bill defines male as uh, something similarly offensive, an individual with testes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a definition of sex that's totally just about uh, reproduction. They're like, it's... Um, it's ugly. It's completely discriminatory against intersex people, people with ambiguous genitalia at birth. Um, it's, you know, it, it has all of the hallmarks of being anti-trans. And um, so, you know, we're, we're mentioning it here because it, it feels like it's sort of part of this larger wave, this larger cluster of um, laws, policies, trainings, um, legislative moves, uh, corporate moves that have in common a desire to define and regulate the sexual body in this very strong way um, that in particular prevents women um, and queer people from being able to survive, make a living, have ownership over their own bodies. Um, yeah, Handmaiden's Tale bingo for sure. I'm about to make a transition to a conversation that I had with Taryn, who is a 27-year-old asexual biromantic femcat mom with a coffee addiction. That's her description of herself on Ace in the Hole, which is an asexual sex blog. So what does this have to do with the conversation we just had earlier? I think that the connection I really want to make is that while On the Dresser is a podcast about sex and sexuality and politics and queerness, we usually think of ourselves as sex positive and sex educated because um, we're sex workers and a lot of us are also sex educators. But one thing we don't know a lot about because none of us identify as asexual is asexuality as an orientation, as a lived experience. We may know something about sex without desire. We may know something about the way that culture regulates and controls understandings of sexuality. But asexuality itself is an experience that none of the hosts of this show really can claim. And so my conversation with Taryn was really illuminating for me. And it also really helped me think about how much body positivity or sex positivity can be a way to erase asexuality as a viable orientation and as a real lived experience. So let's remember asexuality. Let's remember our ace friends on the LGBTQIA spectrum 
And let's get into this conversation with Taryn. Hi, Taryn. Hi. I'm really happy to be speaking with you today. Would you introduce yourself to On The Dresser listeners? Yeah. So my name is Taryn. I write over at aceinthehole.co. Um, I also tweet under at underscore ace in the hole if you want to follow along with my general shenanigans. Um, but I am an asexual sex writer and that's not really a thing that happens a whole lot. So I'm glad to be here talking about asexuality and busting some myths yes. and having fun. <laughs> Yeah, so I am so grateful that you're here to talk with us today because definitely asexuality is a topic that it feels really difficult to talk about without having someone who's identifying as asexual as part of the conversation. Um, and I think that's one of the one of the reasons why I have not had that many conversations about it is just because it seems like it's an identity that has a lot of invisibility or silence surrounding it. Um, yeah, asexual people and aromantic people um, experience a lot of the same erasure. Um, we're frequently put under the same kind of umbrella. So um, I really appreciate that you're making time to talk about asexuality um, because it is very important to to me and to the community as a whole. So when we say when we say asexuality and aromantic, let's help people who maybe haven't heard those terms. What what's the difference? What do they mean? Yeah, so asexual means that you don't experience sexual attraction to people, and aromantic means that you don't experience romantic attraction to people. You can be both. You can be either or. Um, it's not mutually exclusive, but under the arrow ace umbrella is frequently where we're put um, just because we're not experiencing a type of attraction. Just for people who haven't heard it, ace is a sort of friendly, colloquial way to refer to an asexual person. Yeah, yeah. It's just a shortening because saying asexual can get a little tongue-tied sometimes. Yeah. And I, and I want to be careful also for, for people like me who don't identify as asexual that like it's an okay term for me to use also if someone's used it for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How does it work for very young people? Can we can we talk a little bit about how one comes to an understanding of asexuality and what that process is like? I understand it's different for everybody, and I don't mean to ask for generalizations, but I but there, what are some of the themes or some of the common threads? Yeah, so I've heard a lot of stories. I had the same experience where you kind of feel like something is off, but you don't really know what it is because in school, you know, your friends have crushes. And once you get to high school and college, there's a lot of dating and a lot of sex talk and you feel kind of disconnected from that. I did, um, at least. And it's really hard to identify the absence of something. I think, you know, when you're, um, when you're gay or lesbian or, or what have you, you know that that attraction is different from what society expects from you. And even though it's very difficult, um, in some cases, you know that it's there when you're ace or aromantic, it, you, you kind of just think that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. You like, you just think that something's not right with you, that you're, you just haven't met the right person or, or what have you. That's a common theme that I see. Mm, like you'll you'll develop those feelings when you meet your special someone yep oh wow yeah, yeah that's a yeah. fun one. <laughs> oh, 
Uh, okay. So it, it can be a, a sense of like, why is everyone starting to go nuts over this thing that I don't care about? Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about your Ace in the Hole journey. Tell, tell us a little bit about the blog and the work that you're doing. Yeah. So, um, I started the blog back in late 2016. I didn't see a whole lot of asexual sex writers out there. And I wanted to put the message out there that asexual people can and do enjoy sex. Um, and you know, some people do, some people don't, but I wanted another perspective out there as um, an ace person who uses and enjoys sex toys and has uh, romantic and sexual relations with alloromantic people, which are people who experience both sexual and romantic attraction. I, I started following some, some sex writers a couple of years ago, and I thought they're doing really good work around education and education runs in my family. Um, I originally started college thinking I was going to be a teacher before I realized I don't really like kids. So I decided to change that one, but (laughs) I, but I still wanted to educate. And I think that this platform has become a really important space for me to be able to talk about things that you don't hear about every day. You don't really see in the media and people don't have exposure to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the blog has a couple of different sections. Um, one of them is sex toy reviews. Yeah. I love doing reviews. Um, I didn't really know a whole lot about sex toys before I got into this. Um, I hadn't really experimented with anything. So I kind of used this as leverage to challenge myself to learn more and experience more. And that's been really great. Actually, that's helped me, um, kind of map out what pleasure looks like for me. And that's been really helpful. It seems like that's probably one of the misunderstandings or myths or pieces of stigma about asexuality, the notion that um, not experiencing sexual attraction means you don't also experience sexual arousal, right? And now we're getting more specific. There's romantic attraction, there's sexual attraction, and then separate from sexual attraction is sexual arousal, which is, you know, may or may not be part of an asexual person's experience. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of people have trouble kind of separating the idea of attraction versus arousal. And a lot of asexual people do get aroused and do engage in sex or masturbation. And that's great. Others don't. Um, There is definitely a section of the community that considers themselves uh, sex averse or sex repulsed. And that's totally fine. You know, if you don't want to engage in anything, that is absolutely your prerogative. But it's not the universal experience for ace folks. How would you differentiate for, for somebody who's, you know, not, not thought this through for themselves, the difference between sexual attraction and sexual arousal? How, how can we explain those as different for people who they all seem the same? So I would, oh, that's a good question. I would categorize arousal more as a physical response and attraction more as a gut response. I guess I'm not really sure because I don't experience it. So I don't really, <laughs> I don't really know the difference. Okay. Maybe we can think of it as like sexual attraction is like wanting something that's not already touching your body. Right. And, and sexual arousal happens when there actually is like a physical event occurring with the body to, I don't know. 
I'm, I'm making it up. <laughs> no, that's a better way to put it for sure. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's actually something that probably a lot of people experience to some degree or in different times of their life. Like, I just don't see anything I want out there or whatever that feeling is, you know? Um, so, but there's, a, but there is a difference between a kind of like waves of that in your life and it being a sexual orientation. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. And that's actually one of the challenges. Like when I first started coming to terms with the fact that I was asexual, I was also in the midst of a really heavy bout of depression. And so my doctor and my therapist both said, well, it's probably just the depression. You know, once you get on the medication, it's going to be fine. Um, and that wasn't the case. And it's really hard to kind of untangle what that looks like. I think it does definitely take time as well, because, you know, with time, your situations will change, your hormones will change, and you might feel that, uh, that spark again with someone. Um, but with asexuality it's just kind of constant over the course of years and years. And, um, that was kind of the telltale for me was that nothing I did changed it. And it had been, it had been lasting for so long that it was fairly obvious that it was more of an identity and not, you know, depression or anxiety or what have you. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about your story, whatever you feel like sharing about your, your journey to where you're at now? Yeah. So I didn't know the word for asexuality until I was in college. I was probably about 2021. Um, and even though I didn't have a word for it, I knew that even in elementary school, middle school, high school, I wasn't on the same page as some of my friends. You know, they were all talking about, Oh, dating, dating somebody and having sex and da da da. And I was like, cool, I'm going to go take a nap because I'd rather do that. So there was a lot of disconnect there and I didn't really know what that meant. I thought at the time that I just hadn't met the right person. And there's that whole narrative that's kind of destructive actually, um, because it, it puts the onus on you to find someone to fix you I'm using air quotes here because, you know, I don't like that, but, um, that can be really difficult to come to terms with. But my personal experience was that once I got on the internet and started learning about it, I went, Hey, that's me. I didn't know this was a thing. And I feel like that's kind of a common thread with the other ACE people that I know is like, we didn't have words for it when we were younger, but then we found it and really identified with it. So did you find a group? Did you get to meet some other ACEs? How did you, it sounds like you were alone. Yeah, I was alone. Um, I found some groups on the internet and, you know, there's some forums and, and chats, but largely I was by myself. It wasn't until, um, very recently, actually, just within the last five or so years that I found out that one of my best friends is also ace. Um, so we kind of bonded over that. And with the blog, I've definitely met more ace people that way. And it's really interesting to see people from, different stages of life, kind of figuring it out. And I'm happy to be there and to provide support and say, Hey, like, this isn't unusual. I had the same thing happen, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
There's something very familiar about that narrative for, for me as a queer person too. Like, um, I, I had sort of a late in life, um, change. I was, I was raised religious and, Mm. um, and it took me a long time to, to really look my, look myself (laughs) squarely in the face and be (laughs) like, you are different. Um, (laughs) yeah, it can be hard. Yes. So I think that that, and that sort of, uh, that sense of shame or discomfort or isolation or what's wrong with me being, and then having that turn from all of that self-destruction into something that is like, oh, actually there's like healthy, happy people out there who have very similar things going on and I can be in a community. I can find mentors. I can find friends. Um, it, it's like, is that that feels like a very key piece of having a marginalized sexual identity of any kind yeah finding finding people Mm -hmm. yeah I think finding people is really essential and even now like I'll still have those moments of maybe I'm overblowing this maybe I'm overreacting maybe you know it's it's just me maybe my hormones are off maybe my medication's not right um so there's definitely still moments of doubt but um the community really makes that easier. Yeah. So what are some of the pieces of um, stigma around asexuality that are specific to asexuality? What are, what are some of the things that you see in media or, you know, in culture? Yeah. Um, one of the big ones is that all asexual people are giant prudes um, and just ice queens kind of and don't want anything to do with sex, no jokes, no media, no, you know, relationships. And while that's fine, that's definitely not universal. And, um, it also, I see a lot in media that asexuality is a problem in relationships. And I don't think that that's true as someone in a committed relationship. It's not that big of a problem. You know, our, our problems are, why did you load the dishwasher that way? Not my sexuality. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So having like a, a mismatch in your sexual desire or your, or your, um, you know, attraction patterns is something that, I mean, I feel like people are working, like everyone's working that out. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's important to remember too. Like my fiance and I have check-ins every week where we say, you know, how do you feel about our sex life right now? And it takes a lot of negotiating for us. I love that. Like, yeah, it's great. I actually wrote a post about it. (laughs) Listener tip. Check in once a week about your sex life. God. Yeah, it's great. great. It's great. We have five check-in questions um, that we go through every week and it's, it's really helpful, but we talk about our sex life specifically because it's so easy for me to just forget to have sex. Um, and he's not asexual, so he doesn't forget and he will be very quick to remind me. So it's nice to kind of have that, uh, stable point every week where I get a nice reminder. Mm-hmm. And it's built in to be gentle and supportive of who you are. Yeah. And it's not a situation where it's like, Hey, can we talk like, <laughs> <laughs> which is never a good feeling. Yeah, you know? um, yeah. It's a, it's a set time during the week where we know we're going to have a conversation and it's not threatening. It's not aggressive. It's, it's just a really open conversation. Yeah. So we're, we're 
thinking through media now, like what are some of the representations that we have? Do you, do, do you feel like there are enough? I mean, I feel like the answer to that's kind of obviously no. (laughs) So, you know, but like, what are some of the representations that are out there that people can go find to, you know, see themselves reflected? That's a good question. Um, I'm still kind of looking for that. Um, I know that there is one character on Riverdale, I think, that's asexual. Um, but other than that, I don't know of anyone who's canonically asexual, which is a problem because, you know, we don't have a good representation in media. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime anyone talks about asexuality, if they talk about it at all, it's you know, this person's broken or has a problem or is a prude or, you know, whatever. Or it seems like there might be uh, like a kind of association of asexuality with like the religious leader or the, or the like, you know, like asexuality is for the people who are holier than thou kind of, right? Like that's the other association I would have. Yeah, definitely. There's that like, oh, you know, I don't have sex, so I'm better than you. Like, that's not, that's not a thing. Um, (laughs) You know, like, there's no morality ascribed to asexuality. And it's not a choice either. You know, it's not like I chose to never experience sexual attraction. Um, So it's, yeah, the religion one is hard. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Especially with gender um, with assumptions about gender and, yeah. you know, like asexual, asexual women being somehow supported in that through religion until they're married <laughs> and then, yeah. and then expected to change. Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, if we're talking about the binary genders, I think there's, um, different sets of struggles for, for each, um, you know, for women, it's this be pure until marriage and then, you know, be nasty with your husband. And for men, I think it's really tied up in masculinity. Like, Oh, you don't want to have sex. What kind of guy are you? Um, there's a lot of homophobia in there as well. And just, you know, it's back to the toxic masculinity thing where there's this performative, sex drive that guys seem to need to talk about. And if you're an ace guy, I would imagine that that would be hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you want to see? You know, like let's, let's say next year there's a movie and it's some mainstream thing and there's an ace character. What, what would you like to see? What would make you happy to see? I just want to see an average person, you know, like, (laughs) Like, I don't, I'm not asking for a whole lot here. I just want to see like a middle school teacher who has trouble paying rent and, you know, hangs out with their friends and does all. And by the way, she's also asexual. You know, I don't necessarily want it to be the center of the story. I want it to be talked about, but I don't think it should be the center of every single ace story. Yeah. I just think it would be nice to just have someone who's also ace right so not a not a marvel character who draws their power from their (laughs) their that would be kind of cool (laughs) can i get a cape or a shield or something that would be rad yeah 
Yeah, no, I hear that. I, I, you know, I'm thinking about the way that I'm always wishing that there were just really normal poly characters and really yeah. normal queer characters, like, you know, queer characters who the, whatever the piece of media is, is not about their coming out story is not about their dating necessarily even like, yeah. you know, can we have media where it's the other questions of life are, are featured. <laughs> yeah, know. exactly. Because like your sexuality isn't always central to what's going on in your life. You know, as you're figuring it out and coming out, sure that it might be very central then, but then time goes on and, you know, you're finding new jobs and buying a house and maybe having kids and there's more going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Is there anything else you'd really like to offer to the listeners as part of their ACE, their ACE 101 here today? Yeah. Um, if someone tells you that they're ACE, there are a couple typical reactions that I would like to steer people away from. Um, one that I got a lot was, oh, are you a plant? Like, because plants reproduce asexually. I don't know. It's like seventh grade biology class all over again. So don't compare us to plants or amoebas or whatever. Um, that's not what it is. <laughs> don't yeah. do that. Yeah, don't do that. Um, and if someone has the courage to tell you that they're ace, don't say, oh, well, you just haven't met the right person yet. Or have you checked your hormones? Or maybe it's your depression. Like there's a lot of invalidating that goes on when someone comes out as ace or aromantic for the, for the same reason. Um, so don't do that. Just, you know, it's like with anyone else, just be supportive of your friend or family member and ask what you can do to support them. And that's, all you need, even if you don't understand it, that's fine. You don't need to, you're not the ACE one, yeah. you know, you can read up on it later. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think I, I hear you with the, don't assume that that means there's something wrong Yeah. or that an ACE person is missing out on, you know, the most important of life's great pleasures. Like there's lots of, lots of great pleasures in life. <laughs> yeah and that's another that's another frequent one too is like well how do you know you're asexual if you've never had sex and it's like well how do you know that you don't want to have sex with a blender like you just know you don't need to <laughs> you don't need to have sex with a blender to figure it out Oh, I'm sorry I laughed over that because that's the, that's the clip of the century. <laughs> and a mental image I never want again. Thanks, nope. Taryn. Never. <laughs> oh, my God. Ugh. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me today and helping on the Desser listeners expand their understanding of themselves and others. It's really, really helpful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Taryn for that interview. You can check out more of her work and her thoughts on sex toys and asexuality at aceinthehole.co. That was a pretty great interview. I want to go over some terms that 
you know, kind of flown by. There, there are a few. Um, so there's asexual, um, there's aromantic, and then there's another one that wasn't really, uh, I think, explained. Um, you might have caught it, listeners, but it was allosexual, A-L-L-O sexual. Um, and that's just kind of an easy way of saying not asexual, like someone who experiences sexual attraction. Yeah. And by the way, Danny Cruz, and I'm joined by Lauren Kylie. Thanks for Hello. thanks for closing out with me. I've never had anyone come out to me as uh, asexual. I have, and I this story does not put me in the best light because the first time someone came out as asexual to me, I was kind of a dick about it without realizing or without meaning to. Mm-hmm. I was in college at the time and I think it was about 2007 and it was someone who I was like casually friends with and we were starting to get a little closer and we like, I remember it so vividly. We were sitting in, uh, in (laughs) on the green, um, we're outside and he told me that he was asexual and explained what that meant to him and my first reaction was, well, I just don't get that because I'm so hypersexual and like I'm queer and I'm bi and I'm a slut. So I can't even imagine what it's like to not feel sexual attraction and made it all about me really, really fast. Um, but I, but I went, I went home and I got on the internet and I was like, oh, I don't know about this thing and ended up, I, I wish I remember the exact group, but I turned to LiveJournal as... <laughs> Shout out to LiveJournal. <laughs> definitely uh, showing my age with that one too. Um, For those of you who don't know, I, it's like where people got their, a lot of like sexual sharing information pre-Tumblr. <laughs> mm-hmm. It predates Tumblr and was uh, great for, you know, if you wanted to show the world your diary. Which <laughs> was I, a thing. And it's still it a thing. Was, That's not Twitter. It's fine. Yeah, it is totally a thing. Has been a thing. Um, was And was a major part of my life. So mm-hmm. I ran to the sexu- the queer and asexual groups that I could find where I figured out pretty quickly that I had been a total jerk about it. Um, I wish I could say that I remembered going back and explicitly apologizing and making up for it, but we did stay friends and I know that I at least made a a much more active effort to be less of a jerk um, from that. Yeah, so it it turns out that a lot of my tips for when someone is coming out as asexual or or on the asexuality spectrum um, is similar to our tips for coming out in general that I think we've done in a past episode, which is it's not about you and don't be an asshole. Yeah, and that's that's why I mean. Vanessa has it right. We don't, none of us have this as a lived experience. Um, not a, like making any apologies for like, I cringed when I heard your story <laughs> a little bit. Um, that comes from a place of like, I've grown in that way before. Like hoops among us has not said something cringy and yeah. has then learned from it, grown and like did the work on our own. 
Um, and and Turn was uh, mentioned that also. She was like, you know, it's not about you. Don't center yourself. You can, if you have like questions and feels, like you can then do the work on your own separately. Yeah. Like there's Google now. There's things. Mm-hmm. There's groups. Um, in just like going over the show, like I was following and retweeting and like thinking through a bunch of uh, Twitter accounts that are um, for asexuals, about asexuals, um, trying to like kind of get a grasp because I, I, yeah, realize I, I don't know much and um, I should, I should change that. I, I think I'm still definitely stronger in reading and writing and still feel a little awkward when it comes to vocalizing but I I think I've become comfortable to a point in I'm never going to claim that I am not an asshole and I will probably continue to say cringeworthy shit and and like I can even feel myself getting defensive for like me over a decade ago Mm -hmm. um but that's such a big part of it is like all right you know sit with that defensiveness like where does it come that's, from? Why that's is the there? thing. And this isn't about me. This isn't about always coming back from problematic shit. Mm-hmm. But there, <laughs> there are way there are ways to do it. Yeah, and part of the thing is, um, as Vanessa and Taryn were talking about, there's not a lot of representation, and there's not a lot of like, yes. this is an asexual person, and this is just the regular life they have. Um, Taryn mentioned a character in the show Riverdale. I've never seen that. Um, but I have watched Bojack Horseman. Uh, and Aaron Paul, who's famous for his Breaking Bad role, voices a character on that show on Netflix um, named Todd Chavez, who in the most recent season comes out as asexual after he meets another ase- asexual person um, and like goes through a thing of like, oh, maybe that's the thing. Um, so I feel like part of that work is not only for ourselves, but also bringing our listeners on the journey with us is, is hearing these stories and being able to like have a first person account of this is how it was for me. This is mm-hmm. how the sexuality or the lack of functions in my life and how that doesn't make me different than any other regular person. Um, you know, the, as time has passed and communities have grown, moved around the country, one of the things that has been really fascinating and meaningful has been talking to asexual and demisexual friends within the queer community as well as within the kink community because there are elements of kink that for some people are highly sexual and for other people are not or sexual in a different way or romantic in a different way. And it's just the intensely sexual feelings I might get from one kink act could be even more intensely meaningful and powerful for someone who does not have any kind of sexual relationship to that. And it's, it's really helped me rethink how I frame relationships and kink and sex Mm -hmm. and desire. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, in hearing this conversation, like was thinking through like 
like I'll say problematic representation. And what (laughs) came to me was like Steve Carell in 40 year old virgin was definitely like, it wasn't a thing that was addressed. Like he didn't like, I don't think anybody used the term or the language for asexuality in the movie, but like that kind of was a subtext to it. Like he obviously is not very interested and doesn't really like see it as a problem but is surrounded by this performative masculinity culture that's like, what's wrong with you? We got to get you laid. It's a thing. Like, and here's all the things you've got to do before you get laid, like to make yourself layable. Like what? <laughs> he's living his life. Like what, what are you doing? Oh, and, and there's no allowance for any spectrum of sexuality or romantic interest. It is you either, have none and are a loser and need to be fixed or well actually that that's it like that's the spectrum yeah well i guess or you're too strong and you're jane lynch but (laughs) but but like that's not actually how the spectrum of sexuality and romance operates um there's a lot of things wrong with that movie that clearly, but it's also one that I've seen a million times for right. better or for worse. And I, I feel like it's familiar to people. And so that's why mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it came, it came to mind and I was like, oh, wow. Like that was definitely a, probably a cringy movie for anybody who's ever like gone through that. Like I can hear uh, like a lot of the tips for things not to say, like definitely that whole movie. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, that's not a movie that holds up well under any kind of analysis or thought (laughs) yeah well i i hope our listeners learned something i definitely learned a whole bunch um if you would like to uh, follow us on our learning journey we have over 50 episodes Uh, you can find us on our new website uh on the dresser podcast.com and if you'd like to share your own stories or tell us what our problems are please we would love your feedback um you can also email us at on the dresser at gmail.com you can find us on twitter at on the dresser you can you can find me on twitter and instagram at xoxo lauren kylie you can find me on the twitter at a danny boy you can find vanessa on twitter at the carlisle you can find past episodes of our show at SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. While you're there, please rate, subscribe, and review. It really helps. Yes. On the Dresser is produced by me, Lauren Kiley, Dr. Vanessa Carlisle, Danny Cruz. All of our music is by Lou Gomez. All right. Fun show. Yay! All, all power, power to, to the people. people. All, all pleasure, pleasure to the people. people. Good, good night, night and good, good luck. Fuck.